Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting October 2nd, 2015, we talk with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffer Frederick about answers from experts on five continents to the new fall 2015 food fight issues. Big question. How will your country satisfy its future food needs? You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. World of plenty. No one, not a single person, should go hungry. I want to see an end to hunger everywhere. As a film franchise, The Hunger Games is a worldwide success. But real hunger is no game for national and world leaders like Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, launching the United Nations Zero Hunger Challenge, a major attraction at Expo Milan 2015. With the world's population soaring past 7 billion, a host of countries find it increasingly difficult to feed their people today and plan for a future that promises to be even more crowded and hungrier. Accordingly, World Policy Journal's new 2015 fall food fight issue asked experts on five continents, how will your country satisfy its future food needs? To survey the answers, we're joined again by WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick. Jaffa, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me back. Uh, The first answer comes from landlocked Burkina Faso in West Africa, and it stresses training for greater use of scientifically improved seeds and fertilizers but it also says the value of new technology will be limited without improvements in distribution. Talk about that. Sure. Well, Burkina Faso has to invest in its agricultural value chain if it is going to produce enough food to feed its people. And yes, that involves training farmers to make greater use of improved seeds and fertilizers. But these steps can only go so far without proper storage mechanisms that can ensure a year-long food supply. Without them, crops will just rot. So warehouses need to be built in areas where the largest productivity increases are being observed. And at the same time, there needs to be better roads, roads that link deficit areas, say, in the Sahel with surplus areas in the south. If these roads don't exist, then getting better market prices for staple grains won't be possible. And any additional production that might come from these improved seeds and fertilizers won't actually bring more revenue. In fact, farmers might be discouraged from employing these methods. So Burkina Faso really needs a two-pronged approach that involves private and public investment in the agricultural sector with advantages given at every point of the production chain to incentivize farmers and buyers of these products. Uh, Inefficient practices are also seen as a long-term problem in Lebanon, compounded, of course, by the current tsunami of one and a half million Syrian refugees. I was surprised that the relatively small amount of arable land actually cultivated in Lebanon had a huge drain on water supplies and reliance on imports. Give us some numbers. Well, the numbers are quite shocking. Barely 25% of Lebanese land is arable, and that 25% is cultivated using 60% of the country's water supply. And on top of all of that, Lebanon's importing about 80% of its food today. 
talk about government spending on agriculture currently, uh, the impact on small landholders, farmers, and a new strategy for natural resources that's emerged. Well, currently the government allocates less than 1% of its budget to the Ministry of Agriculture, and this is shocking because 60% of the population is rural and relies mostly on farming. But because of the fragmentation of land holdings and the lack of effective institutional structures in rural areas, there's been massive land abandonment entirely. So the government can definitely do more, and that starts really with the creation of sustainable management of natural resources in response to these unsuitable farming systems, but also in response to climate change. And on top of that, it needs to improve its post-harvest sector. Research shows the importance of developing these research methods, the importance of determining the food security indicators, and really preparing future Lebanese leaders to create targeted agricultural policies. But of course, any new strategy that the Lebanese government develops needs to engage women and children, and it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach where, once again, we're involving public and private sectors in it. In connection with the refugee problem and Lebanon's own most dependent, there's a call for expansion of what they call community kitchens linked to kitchen gardens and local farmers. Tell us about them and their impact. Sure. Well, to give a sense of the need for this kind of creative thinking, I'll just remind you of the numbers. You mentioned earlier there's an increase of 1.5 million refugees in Lebanon, which is a 30% increase in the country's overall population. And these refugees are often being hosted in communities that are quite poor themselves. So they're putting an additional strain on people who don't have much to begin with. So one idea for addressing the problem is the creation of these community kitchens, which are linked to kitchen gardens or local farms. And that's where women from both the host and displaced communities can come together to prepare hot meals for their families and cook even food for sale. So this approach can boost the local economy and improve everyone's overall food security. There's a paradoxical problem in Argentina where genetically modified soybeans are now seen as threatening, not buttressing food security. First, explain the importance of soybeans there. Sure. Since the late 1990s, with the introduction of genetically modified soybeans, Argentina has experienced an agricultural boom. Today, soybeans cover half of the nation's agricultural land, which is about 50 million acres. And Argentina exports 50 million tons of soybeans per year, which is about 25% of Argentina's overall exports now. The genetic tinkering doesn't actually expand crop yields. What does it accomplish? Right, it doesn't, but it does simplify the process of production. And so that allows for more growth of these soybean plants, which are then exported to Europe and Asia each year. And how could that create a threat to Argentina's larger food security? Well, the problem is that these genetically modified soybeans are, number one, sprayed with herbicides, and agrochemical drifts have become a major issue for farmers supplying food to local markets. And it gets worse from there because with agricultural expansion comes an increased demand for land, which puts new pressure on small farmers who can't compete. It's also brought shifts in cattle production. The famous grass-fed Argentine beef is actually currently fed in feedlots instead. So Argentina's soy-based animal feed might be feeding the world, but in the end it's at the cost of impairing access to local and healthy food for its own citizens and at the cost of pushing the small farmers out of the business. So is there any thought about how this can be resolved without just turning their backs on, uh, you know, the scientific improvements? 
Yeah, that's actually a question that's currently uh, a hot topic of debate and I think will actually be a really big question in the next um, Argentine elections because there are new parties and, you know, the joy of the parliamentary system that are forming just around this issue to represent the farmers who are fighting back. But as of now, I haven't seen any uh, clear indicators of what the response is going to be. The response to your big question from energy-rich Qatar on the Arabian Peninsula notes the limited water resources and arable land that make it unavoidably dependent on imports, but it suggests that wisely focused use of its enviable wealth could provide greater food security, encouraging strategic food reserves and investment in particular crops. Which ones and with what kind of plan? Sure. So in 2008, the Qatar National Food Security Program was established to develop a strategic plan for food security, and it was completed about five years later. And the focus was strategic choices about securing food through a mix of both domestic investments in agriculture and food stocks, but also in international market arrangements, so think trade agreements. But meanwhile, domestic agriculture supplies a very limited amount of vegetables, dairy, poultry, and livestock. So Qatar has also placed uh, a new emphasis, I would say, on improving sustainable domestic production of certain targeted food items. The long-term goal is clear. It's to ensure higher levels of domestic production of these certain fruits and vegetables, dairy and poultry, but at the same time to establish a greater choice of trade partners for import regarding food commodities that they can't grow internally. In Laos, there's a problem with changing tastes versus traditional scavenging and subsistence farming. Talk about that. Sure. Well, people aren't foraging for food the way they used to. Today, especially in some of the towns and cities, um, there's more farmed and imported produce as well as sweet and processed foods. So the farmers that do exist are actually now focusing on more of commercial crops instead of growing multiple crops, which in the past would have been used more for the family-style farm to feed everyone in in the area. And farmers today, of course, are using more chemical pesticides and fertilizers um, from China, which is definitely limiting the amount of land for future use. And I would say similar to the case of Argentina affecting the local food markets. Regional instability prompts a call for Laos to reduce food imports and replace them how? Well, first, Laos needs to kind of look internally and look to its past for more varied sources of food, particularly regarding protein. Um, I know it might sound gross to some people, but in Laos, this means a return to the popularity of insects, for example, as everyday food. At the same time, farmers need to build their production food skills. They need to build the infrastructure that's needed to rapidly produce food. They can't serve as a competitor to neighboring Thailand, where Laos is getting a lot of its uh, produce from these days, unless they have the mechanisms in place to produce rapidly. From Canada, with no shortage of land and water for food production, the answer to WPJ's big question is a call to reduce food exports. How are they seen as a problem? Well, it's a fairly narrow goal that has little relation to outcomes expected from a robust food system. It really ignores the economic, environmental, and personal health needs of Canadians now and in the future. So what's the proposed solution? Well, it's it's kind of a four-part solution. Uh, The first step would be new food policy should shift government incentives to protect farmers who are actually producing most of the produce and lean meats 
Obviously, these products are critical to maintaining a healthy diet, but these incentives for farmers also encourage job creation. Um, and supply management would also ensure sufficient produce production while reducing transportation, waste, pollution, a lot of the things we associate with transporting food over long distances. But secondly, Canada should join other industrialized nations in promoting universal school meals, creating curricula around food skills, literacy, and engagement. And from there, you kind of move on to number three. Canada should support community food centers. These help neighborhoods grow healthier foods and community gardens, teach food skills, teach the process of composting food scraps. And finally, and this is something that Canada is already pretty actively engaged in, it's the creation of food policy councils. These are collaborations of citizen groups and municipal leaders who promote these community-based programs. Um, and if there's any indication within Canada, these are spreading pretty rapidly, which I'd say is a sense that Canadians really do want to be engaged with the, the food processes in their country. The situation in Germany is probably the most enviable of all. Remind us of its ranking on the 2015 Global Food Security Index and the factors involved in that ranking. Sure. Germany is currently ranked the eighth of the world, and the Global Food Security Index assesses things like food affordability, food availability, the quality of it, and the safety by which it's transported. And Germany's high position on this index is unlikely to change anytime soon, given that it has an efficient and diverse agricultural sector. It has a pretty good geographic location and climate, and then, of course, as a member of the EU, it has access to the large and diverse agricultural market that the EU services. Even apart from increasing problems with refugees, as elsewhere in Europe, there are some concerns in Germany about what's called social deprivation. Talk about that. Sure. Well, social deprivation is actually best defined uh, within the parameters of social marginalization. So recently there were studies in Germany that have shown these precarious social milus um, indicating higher probabilities of malnutrition or even undernutrition. So even though you have affordable fresh products readily available, many families are relying on pre-cooked food or cheap quality, ones that are high in fat or sugar. And the number of households where no real cooking um, is happening is actually growing significantly, particularly um, amongst lower socioeconomic, but frankly across all across the spectrum. So uh, the most recent study that I read actually indicated that schools are observing more children nowadays go to school without breakfast or with a breakfast that consists of fast food than ever before. So what are the thoughts about how to deal with this form of uh, of hunger? So it's actually, I would say, similar to um, the Canadian methods, where you need people to re-engage with the food process, whether this involves some sort of you know, food policy council where citizens are getting involved, the creation of these community gardens. Um, people have become so busy that they don't have time, and then they don't engage, and so they need the incentives and they need the programs that make food fun and exciting again. Yafa, thank you. Thank you. Yaffa Frederick is managing editor of World Policy Journal. She surveyed responses from experts on five continents to the big question in the new fall 2015 food fight issue. How will your country satisfy its future food needs? Also featured in the new fall issue, you'll find a conversation with Ségolène Royal, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, about feeding the world, plus articles on the avoidable loss and waste of food, and on cuisine, controversy, and nationalism.
And listen next week when our podcast will feature famous French prince and gardener Louis-Albert de Broglie, who's pioneering smaller, smarter, more productive approaches to agriculture. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.